Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian publication. If you would like to have a look at what we're doing with the magazine, you can request yourself a free copy. Just go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But today here on The Profile, I am delighted to say I am joined by the Scottish theologian, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. This is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and testimony. And Dr. Ferguson is a Ligonier Ministries teaching fellow and Chancellor's Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary. He's also authored many books and has decades of experience on the front line of Christian ministry. He's a well-known Bible teacher, especially among Christians who identify with Reformed theology. Dr. Ferguson, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Sam. I'm glad to be able to speak to you. So we always like to start here by uh, asking about a person's life growing up. So um, we can probably already tell from the accent, I imagine that you were born and bred in Scotland. Is that right? Absolutely right. Yes, I was uh, born and brought up in Glasgow, although my family comes to the north of Scotland. Born in the east end of Glasgow, went to school there. I didn't leave Glasgow until I went away to university. And tell me a bit about uh, your parents. Um, what was your kind of upbringing like in, in Glasgow? Yeah, it was pretty typical um, post-war uh, East End of Glasgow upbringing. Uh, my folks didn't go to church at all, actually, until after I was converted when I was 14, almost 15. But uh, in the 1950s in Scotland, it was, still the, it was still the done thing to send your children to Sunday school. And so they sent me to the church at the end of the street, actually. They wouldn't have known what that church was really like. Um, But I was, looking back now, wonderfully blessed by having several really very fine Christian Sunday school teachers who in different ways left their mark on me and uh, helped me into the beginnings of my Christian life when I was 14, almost 15. Do you remember um, what that moment was like? Was there a particular time where you really kind of made a made a commitment to to God? Was it was it a gradual thing? Yeah, it was actually it was both graduate and you know I really can put a I can put a half hour on it. Uh, it was gradual in the sense that one of my Sunday school teachers, uh, whose name was Jimmy Stewart, not the actor. Uh, but uh, he he was my Sunday school teacher, and he encouraged me to join the Scripture Union, um, which I'm sure most listeners will know about. Yeah. And so I did that when I was nine, and I, I actually read the Bible with, looking back now, amazing consistency for the next five years. I probably missed probably less than a week of days when I did not read wow. the Bible. Um, but I think in reading it, I, I, I think I, it's amazing to look back and think I became, I think, a, a kind of quintessential uh, person who thought that being a Christian was reading my Bible, praying, and in those days helping old ladies across the street, trying not to get into too much trouble, uh, going to religious exercises, as the forefathers would have called them. And then when I was 14, um, we had a new minister in our church, and there was something of a, a minor spiritual awakening 
especially among younger people. And I think for the first time I saw in uh, some people I knew who were a little older than I was, uh, what it was I'd been reading in the New Testament. Um, and, and that, somewhat to my shock, actually, as I look back, uh, made me realize that uh, I wasn't really a Christian at all. Wow. So that began, uh, that and a variety of other things began uh, a longing to know Christ, mm-hmm. uh, which was punctuated in the course of a few months by some really wonderful providences of God. For example, I started going to both services on Sunday, and one Sunday night in January, I was I was walking away from church down the street, slipped a little on ice and slithered beside a man. I'll never forget a small man who seemed to be dressed in black from head to toe. And somehow or another, we engaged in conversation. And he saw that I was holding a Bible. And uh, he said to me, uh, are you saved, son? And it was really like a bolt from the blue. Um, and, and, And in an amazing way, it put his finger on what I wanted most of all in the world, I, I knew I wanted to be a real Christian. It's amazing to me that you were reading your Bible. You say you hardly missed a day of Bible reading and you were praying. And as you say, you were you were helping old ladies across the street. And yet, when he asked that question, are you saved? You, you felt like actually the answer was no. Yeah, yeah. The interesting thing was I had, I, I must have been reading in John's Gospel with the Scripture Union Note, Sam. And I had just been reading at Jesus saying to uh, his contemporaries, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life and you won't come to me to have life. And I, I think that may have been the first verse in which it felt as though Christ was walking straight out of the Bible and speaking to me because that described, I realized that described exactly where I was I had confused reading the Bible with knowing Christ. And then some friends encouraged me to go along to a church that was in the centre of Glasgow, St George's Tron, where they had um, meetings on Saturday. Every every month there was a Saturday night meeting, uh, church-packed, lots of young people. Um, And uh, the the then minister, uh, a man called Tom Allen, preached on John uh, John 8, verse 12, Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And uh, it, was, it was during that service that I, I, I gave all I had to Christ and took all he had for me from Christ, one might say. So that I, I kind of mark the real beginnings of my Christian life mm. to to that Saturday night, February. It was a dark February night, <laughs> but it was a, a night of great light for me. And since then, of course, you have gone on to write many books, to do all kinds of Christian ministry, and we'll come on to talk about that. But I guess the first question is, when was the call to that? Can you, in the same way as you can identify that moment where you gave your life to God, can you also identify a moment in your life where you felt called to that kind of wider ministry? Yeah, I, um, I don't know whether it's a function of being older, but I can't remember the the day, I, I can't even remember the year but I can remember the incident that prompted me. 
um, somebody asked a friend, uh, just we, we were all talking together, and, and somebody said to him, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to be a minister. And I knew this fellow quite well, but I didn't know that. Um, and I kind of liken it to uh, the Lord saying to Isaiah, uh, who am I going to send and who will go for us? And Isaiah saying, here am I, send me. Uh, because it was like a it was like a light going on in my mind. I, I really had no idea what I was going to do. I think I was 16 at the time. Um, and it, it was just a moment when I thought, oh, that's it. That's what I'm to do. Um, and so that was that. <laughs> <laughs> was the next step to go to, to university to do yeah, academic studies? Yeah, and since, you know, th- those days, I guess, there were, there were places in university for maybe about 5% of uh, the population. And I didn't know anyone in my family who had gone. So the first big challenge was, how, how do you do this? Um, is it humanly possible to get into university? And it, it seemed from one point of view like this great insurmountable obstacle. Um, and then when I got there, I discovered it wasn't actually nearly as insurmountable as I feared. <laughs> so uh, did you find um, academic study then came quite naturally to you? Yeah, I, I, I guess I was. I played, I played sport and I also, my mother had been a great reader and I think I'd picked up reading from my mother. Um, so I, some some subjects I enjoyed and others I, I didn't enjoy and things I enjoyed I tended to focus on and the rest I could leave aside. <laughs> so I, I loved it. I actually loved school. I loved, loved university as well. Yeah. It was a great time for me. And what came next? Then I, well, I did, uh, I did an arts degree in philosophy and psychology and then I did a theology degree Um and then I, I became the assistant minister in the church in which I'd been converted in, uh, in the centre of Glasgow. Uh, I was there for three years. And then I, I, I lived um, on the island of Anst uh, as a minister, which most listeners will have no idea where it is. But it's actually the most northerly island in the United Kingdom, the most northerly inhabited island. Wow. So it was. Uh, so I'm I'm picturing something quite rural when it comes to church. Completely, it was it was it was about as far removed from a big, vibrant city centre evangelical yeah. church in Glasgow as you could imagine. It was. I think there were more sheep than people, but it was a <laughs> it was a it was a wonderful and learning experience, and it was also since particularly in the winter it was dark from maybe about three o'clock in the afternoon until almost 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, I, I actually had a lot of time for study. Um, and that was an important thing to me because I felt that if I was going to last in Christian ministry, I needed to get some deeper roots uh, into my soul. And so I look back on that time. It's been a great blessing to me. 
what were the what were the lessons you learned in going from a big city church to somewhere much more rural? And and the reason I ask that is I'm aware there are many, of course, who are still uh, ministering in more rural contexts and who do often look at the the big cities and even some of the the people who might be well known in the Christian world in in bigger places with huge churches. And it can be quite demoralising, I think, um, for those who are pastoring in in smaller contexts. So what were the lessons that you you learned there about uh, being faithful, being being a minister of the gospel in in quite a different setting. Yeah, I think I think I began to learn then. Um, you know, I was still in my I was in my mid twenties. Um, I think I began to learn then that I think I'd placed a great emphasis on on preaching and teaching the word. Um, and I, d- I didn't really have the experience to understand that um, that bears fruit in a congregation when people know you love them. Um, and that was a huge lesson for me uh, to learn to uh, think of think of people in the congregation as people to be loved, and that that would be the context in which the message of the gospel would flow most readily to them because they would sense something of the interest of Jesus Christ in them by their minister's interest in them. And that's probably a lesson that, you know, every young man going into Christian ministry needs to learn. You know, people, you know, by and large, there is much better theological education available today than there was then. And it's easy to mistake the value of your theological education for an ability to serve people. And I think I learned too, you know, Paul says an interesting thing in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, I think it's verse 5, uh, when he says, we, you know, we, we, we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And then he adds, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. And so those were days, I think, when, you know, if you have a huge congregation, it's actually, it's actually quite difficult to express the riches of the gospel to them through your personal relationships with them. And it is one of the blessings of, of having a smaller congregation. The other great challenge is if you move into a rural setting, you know, for the first 40 years, you're an outsider. <laughs> um, and and people are related to one another. Um, and I, I, my boss said to me, the man whose assistant I'd been, he said it would be wonderful to get away from the sin of the city. And when I got there, I I, I thought to myself, actually, in the city the sin is hidden, but here everybody knows about it except you. Um, <laughs> And it it's um it I think it does take people in a rural community mm. a longer time to realise that you you actually love them. Mm. Um, and you know the other thing I've been a minister in a large church of two and a half thousand people, and I know that some ministers look at that and think it must be great to have a great staff. Mm. Uh, and so on. I sit and well, you know I we've got as many staff as you've got members of the congregation. Think about the, <laughs> think about the struggles you have in your congregation <laughs> when you see them, you know, two days a week. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not, you know, larger churches are not without their problems. Yes. And I think in many ways, 
you know, I often say to the students I teach in the seminary, don't be taken in by the fact that all of the interviews you see with, quote, successful ministers are ministers of large churches, because I don't think Christ sees his pastors that way. And often when you read the statistics, you realize, you know, these people, these people have more people not coming to worship in their churches than you have people in your church. Right, yeah. So often, if, you know, if they're honest about it, they have multiplied spiritual problems and burdens. Mm. You've done uh, a lot of work in America. I wanted to talk a bit about that. How did how did all that first come about? Because I notice you're not the only Scottish Reformed uh, minister to go over to the States and to be quite well known over there. Um, it's a curious trend. But how did it happen for you? Yes. Well, um, you know, my friend Alistair Begg and I both went to the United States the same year. And although we've been friends forever, very close friends, <laughs> neither of us knew the other was going. <laughs> so I think we crept out under cover of night. I went. Um, I went basically because I was, I was somewhat pursued by the president of a seminary, um, and I went. I went kind of kicking and screaming. I mean, eventually I was subdued, but I didn't. I didn't want to leave Scotland. Um, I, uh, I, I actually didn't want to teach in a theological seminary full time. Um, so uh, it it took it took uh, it took best part of nine maybe nine well six months for me um, to come to the decision that this was the Lord's will. Um, and, you know, looking back now, I rejoice in the blessings that that brought to my life. But it was a it was a tough decision to make, actually. Yeah, I mean, some might look from the outside on this. And, and Alistair Begg is a, is a previous guest on this show. And he, oh. he tells his own story, of course, about, about how that happened. But mm-hmm. And obviously, we have to acknowledge, if God calls someone... God calls someone. At the same time, I guess, pragmatically, you could argue, well, Scotland, especially nowadays, um, is incredibly secular and arguably far more in need of gospel preaching, arguably, than some parts of America. And there has been quite, not just you and Alistair, but there's been quite a lot of UK ministers who have ended up in America. And some people have looked at this as a slightly curious trend, thinking, but surely we need gospel preaching here more than America, we're secularizing at a, a far faster rate. I mean, what do you make of that argument? Well, um, I, I completely understand it, empathize with it. Um, at the same time, you know, I, I, you know, I think if the if the Lord is sovereign and providentially overrules our lives, um, then. In a way, we should expect things like this to happen. And for example, to use Alistair as an illustration and say what, I don't know whether he said this, probably not, more people in the United Kingdom can listen to Alistair's preaching today than would ever have been able to do if he had stayed in Scotland. Um, Now, that's not something you can predict going forwards, Mm. 
But now at this distance from 1983, when uh, when he went to Cleveland, you can I think you can see the hand of God's blessing on people who listen to him in Scotland and and I imagine all over the world. Um, so I think one has to one has to balance the sense of loss with the with the the fairly obvious gains. You know, I'm not sure that could be that could not be said with with respect to me. I I don't think. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, I I have I have uh, helped in the preparation of many more people for uh, gospel ministry throughout the world mm-hmm. than I ever would have been able to do in Scotland. Yes. So, in, you know, in that sense, obviously, because I'm an individual involved in having left the country, uh, I look for, Lord, um, you know, why am I leaving the situation I love to go to a situation that I, I don't really belong at the moment? Mm. You know, we live that way, don't we? We, we? we make decisions believing them to be the Lord's will, but we can never totally second-guess mm. what his purposes are. Yeah. I'd love to know what you've observed in America, what surprises you over there or has surprised you, particularly about Christians, about um, understanding of, of the Bible. You know, are there certain things that you've observed there that you think the UK church can learn from or even things you've observed over there that you think, wow, uh, our American friends are getting this wrong in a way that us Brits perhaps haven't? Yes, um, well... Spent half my time in the United States defending the National Health Service, <laughs> and half my time here defending American Christians. When when I went now, the first Sam, I went to teach in a seminary, so that was that was a different kind of experience from going like Alistair to be minister of a church, and in some ways it was a lot easier um, because you've got a you've got a pretty small slice of the pie to deal with. Um, but one of the first things the students wanted me to do was to watch American religious television, um, to to uh, to baptize me into one of the problems they had, which was explaining to people that a lot of the things they saw on American religious television were not authentic Christianity. Um, as in the 80s and into the 90s actually emerged, there were all kinds of scandals over people who were very prominent in religious uh, television. And so I think one of the things I discovered was there were, there were the United States is a united states, and Christianity in the United States uh, comes in all shapes and sizes. I would have said about the United Kingdom that kind of default Christianity tended towards moderatism and um, a kind of sense of if you're if you're living a good life, which we all ought to live, then you can call yourself a Christian. Whereas, so it, it didn't. I don't think British Christianity has ever really defaulted to evangelical Christianity. Evangelical Christianity has sometimes been stronger and often been weaker. But in the United States, because of the way the Christian faith spread, 
default Christianity in many parts of the United States had a kind of evangelical tinge about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you you would find that, that that evangelical tinge, as a friend said to me about one area in which I actually went to live, it, the Christianity, Christianity here is a mile wide and an inch deep. Um, one of the things I noticed, for example, when I went was that British British evangelical churches were much more likely to gather together for prayer than American evangelical churches. And yet what was paradoxical was the size of the buildings and the size of the congregation. And I, I thought so much then about the fact that because often evangelical Christians have had their backs against the wall here, that they had, they still had the most important things in place, whereas in in many American churches, all the kinds of activistic things that we can do had swallowed up the space and the time of the church program, and the recognition that actually we cannot do the fundamental things without seeking the blessing of God had begun to be pushed to the edges in many churches. So, and there were many things that, you know, I mean, Americans are, are, you know, by and large, half full glass people. And we, we Celts generally are, well, <laughs> half empty, <laughs> optimistic. Yes. Um, you know, greater flexibility, which was, was, you know, a wonderful thing. Um, I think I found also that a major thing in the United States was that Christians had built institutions. They had built schools, Mm -hmm. elementary schools, high schools. They built universities and colleges. And that provided a strength that nothing in the United Kingdom did. Um, And you you could often see that, for example, in in the, the eldership of the church or the leadership of the church. Um, just, uh, you know, the, the, the church I was in, I ended up teaching in seminary and being minister of a church simultaneously. And the, the ability of the elders in the congregation was pretty remarkable. I'm Sam Hales. You're listening to my interview with Dr. Sinclair Ferguson on The Profile this afternoon. Whether you're joining us on air on Premier Christian Radio or via the podcast, I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. Dr. Ferguson will be one of the speakers at the upcoming conference organised by Ligonier Ministries, The Light of the World. It's happening in London, end of September. We are giving away two free tickets to that conference when you subscribe to Premier Christianity magazine. Get two free tickets to the Light of the World conference. Those tickets are normally worth £118, but you can have them completely free for that upcoming conference. Just go to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. You will get 12 issues of the UK's leading Christian magazine delivered to your door each and every month. You will get full online access to our archive and you will get those two tickets to the Light of the World Conference. Simply subscribe now at premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. We'll be back to hear more from Dr. Sinclair Ferguson right after this. Premier Christianity magazine in this month's issue. Former Blue Peter presenter Simon Thomas had it all. A successful TV career, a loving family and a strong faith. But when his wife died, his world fell apart. In the latest issue, Simon talks candidly about grief, 
unanswered prayer, and why death is not the end. Plus, R.T. Kendall writes on the silent divorce between word and spirit. Nick Page tells us why questioning the Bible is a biblical thing to do. And the best-selling Christian author, Philip Yancey, shares his insights on the state of the global church. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. World-class Bible teachers, including Albert Moeller and Alistair Begg, are coming to London. Ligonier Ministries' first ever UK conference is taking place this September and you can go free. You'll get two tickets worth £118 completely free of charge when you subscribe to Premier Christianity magazine. Subscribe now and get your free tickets to the Light of the World conference at premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian publication. It sponsors this show. And this is the show where we delve into a person's life here more about what makes them tick and hear more about their ministry. Today, my guest is Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, the well-known reformed scholar, author and speaker. He'll be appearing at the Light of the World Conference organised by Ligonier Ministries. It's Ligonier Ministries' first ever UK conference. It's coming to London this September and you can get two tickets completely free. These two tickets are normally worth £118, but you can have them completely free. All you have to do is subscribe to the UK's leading Christian magazine, which is, of course, Premier Christianity. It's the magazine that I edit. We publish it every single month, and you can get it delivered direct to your door plus full online access. Simply subscribe, premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. You'll get the mag and you'll get those two tickets. But without any further ado, let's listen in to the second half of my conversation with Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. I'd love to hear a bit more about that idea of both teaching academic theology and also practicing it on a local church level do you have any stories of how one would inform the other yeah um you know i'd always my i felt my basic call was to be a minister of the gospel a preacher of the gospel um i'd always loved i I loved academics um but i never wanted to be an academic um and in a sense spent most of my life bouncing between one and the other. Um, so when I was teaching full-time in seminary, I would beg, borrow, or steal somebody else's congregation. <laughs> and when I was in a congregation, uh, I would uh, I would take opportunities to do some preaching. And then, um, laterally, I, a, a congregation in Columbia, South Carolina, they fo- they phoned me up one day and said, we're coming to see you. Uh, we're looking for a senior minister. We're coming to see you. And we're not taking no for an answer. And I burst out laughing. And the man on the other end of the phone happily burst out laughing. And this was an old established church. It will be 225 years old next year, which by American standards is historic, old, yeah. really. Um and and they they did come and see me, and I told them why I couldn't uh, leave the seminary, and they said, "Well, would you be willing to live somewhere else?" And I was intrigued by the fact that this old established church had the flexibility of mind to think that maybe 
there is something in having uh, one of our ministers, and eventually they had two of their ministers, who were also heavily involved in training people who were going into ministry in the future. And for me personally, that brought together the, the two sides of my being beautifully. Um, and I think it meant that for the students in the seminary, uh, who kind of are used to asking professors the why question, that is to say the, the theoretical, theological question, I actually, at that period in my life, which was the last period of my, my full-time ministry, you might say, um, I found that woven into these why questions were a lot more how questions. And I think that was elicited from them because I was I was perceived as somebody who was getting my hands dirty day, day and daily in, in the work of the ministry of the gospel. Um, and, and so I felt very much that for me that was ideal. And while I think, you know, there's a place in theological institutions for people who are eggheads, <laughs> um, you know, I think a theological faculty should have a really good balance. Yes. But for, for, I think for the seminary, that was also an important balance. And it was a thrilling thing to me that the church had that vision for future ministry. For, you know, as I would say it, you know, we're, we're preparing your grandchildren's pastors and you love your grandchildren. And so this is a tremendously important extension of the ministry that we share in the church. Mm -hmm. And the church was large enough. We had half a dozen uh, pastors. We had all kinds of other people. And they felt that they would be able to cope with um, me spending some time at least teaching. Yes. Um, so so bring us up to date then with your, with your story. Uh, what does life look like for you right now? Well, it looks as though it's going to rain. <laughs> <laughs> you are in Scotland, to be fair. Yeah. It, um, well, life is <laughs> composed of, of kind of concentric circles. Um, our, my personal life, my family life. Um, and then the nearest concentric circle is the church to which we belong, St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. And when, when we came back to Scotland, uh, the minister there, David Robertson, who is just about to head off to Australia, yes. actually, yeah, that's right. asked if I would come and help him. And I said, as long as it's not a job, because <laughs> uh, if this was time for a job, I'd still be in the United States doing what I love doing. So I, since then, I, I, I'm basically the honorary evening preacher, the honorary evening curate, as I like to call myself. Um, and I, I preach most Sunday nights in the year. Um, and, and I'm an elder in the congregation, and that's really, that's kind of my elder's responsibility. And that's been a great uh, privilege for me because, you know, moving from preaching four or five times a week to not doing any of it, I think would have been a bit of a... Mm. Uh, psychological shock to me. Then I I still have a seminary appointment. Uh, as you mentioned at the at the beginning, I'm a chancellor's professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, which has about eight different campuses spread throughout the United States. And uh, so I've a, I have a visa with many addenda in it because uh, you you need to know where you're going. 
Uh, and then I, for a number of years, I've been a teaching fellow with Ligonier Ministries, mm. the ministry that was founded by R.C. Sproul. Yes, and um, I had the great honour of, of interviewing R.C. Sproul on a, on a couple of occasions before. Did you uh, really? Yes, yeah. before he passed away, sadly. Absolutely fabulous character. Yeah. I, I also recently interviewed his son, R.C. Sproul Jr., <laughs> again, a previous guest on this show. But I wanted to, co- to go back to this idea I mentioned at the beginning. You're well known in reformed circles, and indeed R.C. Sproul and Ligonier Ministries, again, would, would fit that kind of category or label of, of reformed theology. For those who yes. aren't aware of what that would even mean, can you give a brief sketch of what reformed theology is um, and also why it matters? Yeah, well, in some ways, the the simplest way to put it is it's it is the it's the it's the recovery of the gospel that the reformers experienced, shaped a little by the the way in which that was understood in Switzerland and France and in. England and Scotland, and in what we would now call the United Kingdom. Um, that is to say, it was a recovery of the, the freeness of God's grace. And the, the outworking of that in terms of, well, uh, if God is gracious to us because we are, to use language of Ephesians, to, uh, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, how does God work in order to bring us to faith in Jesus Christ. And so what Reformed theology tended to emphasize, I guess the name people would associate with Reformed theology most of all would be John Calvin. What Reformed theology actually emphasized was the fullness of God's grace given to us in Jesus Christ. I think often people associate the idea of predestination mm-hmm. with Reformed mm-hmm. theology and with Calvin. Yeah. And certainly that is an element in uh, Calvin and uh, also in Reformed theology. But if you, if you read Calvin, if you read the, the, the Reformed theological statements, many ways 39 articles is a Reformed theological statement. Westminster Confession of Faith is, is a bigger and more robust theological statement. Most of the focus is on God's covenant mercy towards us and the way in which he presents that to us in Jesus Christ. Um, One of the things, for example, that that R.C. uh, emphasized was, so how does the Bible answer the question, who is God? Which in a way is the most important question in the world, and actually shapes people's Christian lives. I I think often Christians don't realize this, that the way we live the Christian life is a reflection of the way in which we think about God. Uh, and so R.C. emphasised the holiness of God. Yes, there are there are a number of, um, uh, like you say, quite often predestination is, is cited as um, something that's very close to Reformed theology or Calvinism. And as you say, that isn't necessarily how uh, reformed types themselves would necessarily want to be known it is more about the glory of god or the holiness of god um but but there are there are some stereotypes out there about reformed theology aren't there i mean one of them is is just that it's uh, it's it's very serious and um sometimes those who have followed it have 
have slightly paradoxically not always been known for being the most gracious, even though the theology itself would emphasise the grace of God. It sometimes had a reputation for being quite strident, for being quite closed, for appearing like it kind of has all the answers neatly sewn up, and for even being quite judgmental towards other Christians. How much of that stereotype is grounded in reality and how much of that is unfair criticism? Yeah, um, I think what I would say, I mean, this is a... This is a form of argumentation that I've met Arminians who are the same. I've met Charismatics who are the same. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the, these, you know, if I could put it this way, I've met people who were Arminians 10 days ago, and they're, they're just as irritating Calvinists 10 days later as they were Arminians. <laughs> so that... Um, you know, I think that kind of argument is one that bounces back on every Christianism because it's often got to do not so much with the theology itself, but with the people um, and and their their cranky dispositions. You find those people in most evangelical churches. Uh, they, they may put different labels on themselves, uh, but they're argumentative, they're, they're awkward, they're judgmental. Um, so that's what I'm saying is I don't think that's a phenomenon produced by being a Calvinist or Reformed. I think it's a phenomenon of the sinful human heart. Mm. Um, and that's why I think it's very interesting that, you know, every... There are so many passages in the New Testament that speak directly to those uh, those dysfunctional tendencies in people who are Reformed. So like I sometimes say, how does Paul describe a Calvinist? Well, he says in Colossians 3, that they, as the elect of God, you put on meekness and gentleness. So those would be the signs that you are the elect of God. Mm. But that applies, and you know that applies in every church, doesn't it? Yes. You know, a pastor in a church yeah. of the Nazarene or an Elam Pentecostal church mm. or some independent church that wouldn't advertise itself as reformed yes. finds the same kind of dysfunctions. Yes. So, you know, what I say about that is just ease back on the accelerator when you're critical of people uh, in in another. Christian constituency, because if you enter that constituency, you will find people who model the grace of God in the gospel. Mm. It, it's been interesting to watch how in the UK there have been people and indeed entire church streams that have been quite comfortable marrying reformed theology and charismatic theology. So someone like R.T. Kendall would talk about being word and spirits. You have a church movement like New Frontiers that would argue very similarly. You don't see that so much in the US, um, in, in my experience. I don't know if you'd agree with that. That In the UK, a lot of the evangelical church is, is quite comfortable um, with, with, with the charismatic, with the gifts of, of the Spirit, um, with um, speaking in tongues, in a way that often if you wear the Reformed label, especially in America, there seems to be quite a strong divide of well, either you believe the Bible or you're charismatic in a way that doesn't seem to exist in this country. Is, would you agree with that? Yeah, to, well, to a certain extent, perhaps because of, of size as much as anything else. Um, but there would be 
there would be a number of groupings that in the United States who would say they were reformed and something else. Um, you know, reformed and dispensationalist. There are not too many people in the UK saying that, or reformed right. and charismatic, like you know the Sovereign Grace churches. I think in the United States, sure, yeah, would be that way. But, um, I think another thing I would say is, by and large, you, you know, we are a small island here, and we and and we've got to find a way of getting on. I think it's true. I mean, in my in my maddest moments, I've sometimes said any nutcase in the United States can find a millionaire who is willing to subsidise his nutcaseiness, and that that's not been true in the United Kingdom. We, you know, we've more needed to find ways of getting on. Uh, yes. with one another. That's very interesting. It brings brings me on to another area I wanted to touch on very briefly, and that is, of course, the context of Reformed theology, as you say, came out of the Reformation at a time um, where there were huge, a huge theological divide on some very important issues. But bring it into the, into the present day, particularly with how evangelical Christians or how people who might take the Reform label, how they think of, how they work with people who are Catholic. Does there need to be a shift because some some would argue that yes of course the, the heart of the reformation justification by faith incredibly important at the same time um you've mentioned we're a small island we need to get on we need to work together and there'll be some who say look if we both believe that jesus died for our sins we need to repent if, if both both protestants and catholics can can agree on on the cross on the resurrection on jesus that's fundamental that's what matters and and would question how uh, useful it is to continue to talk in very stark terms against Catholics. What do you make of that? Well, you know, I think that the, the, there are two things here, Sam, at least two things. One is, um, I think you get Christian people all over the place who don't actually believe what their church officially teaches. Right. Um, but as churches, I don't think we can afford to think at that level of the individual. Um, so, for example, if you said to Calvin, are there, are there believers in the Roman Catholic Church? He, he would have said, well, yes, there are believers in the Roman Catholic Church. If you had asked him, does the Roman Catholic Church accurately teach the gospel? He would have said, no, it doesn't. Um, and I think it's at that level that the, the question needs to be asked. And at least as I, uh, you know, I've paid a fair amount of attention, for example, especially to the writings of the previous pope, the Pope Emeritus, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI. And if you read selectively in his writings, you would find that there was a, there was a lot in common okay. between an evangelical and uh, a modern evangelical and and uh, his writings but if you read them all um, it seems to me there are elements uh, in that teaching where everything that the Roman Catholic Church stood for at the time of the Reformation is still there okay all the old convictions are still there now that in my view they're they're muted in a way they weren't then um, and 
the genius of the Roman Catholic Church is it's been able to hold together in one organization people who believe all kinds of things. I mean, when you begin to probe, the Roman Catholic Church is as wide as it's in some ways it's wider than the Church of England. Right. So in a way, it depends to whom you are speaking. Uh, but when you probe into, so what does the church tell us it believes? It essentially believes the same things. And that means that when you hear a Roman Catholic say something that sounds exactly like what you would say, I think you need to understand that behind that, um, there is a whole body of doctrine that has not really changed. Mm. You're going to be in London at the end of September for Ligonier's The Light of the World Conference. Yes, I'm crossing the border. <laughs> we will welcome you with open arms, Thank obviously. You. Thank you. Uh, I was in London last week, actually. There we go. Very welcome. <laughs> um, we've already touched briefly on R.C. Sproul and Ligonier Ministries, but this is uh, an organisation you've been working with for some time. It is, as I understand it, an American-based organisation organization Ligonier Ministries and this is its first ever London conference. Um, now as as we know there are many conferences, festivals, events in the Christian calendar in this country but this this is a new one so why should people book in for Ligonier Ministries the Light of the World conference and what are you going to be sharing there? Well um, first of all Ligonier um, I would say in the last 10 years Ligonier's ministry has expanded enormously and RC was very forward thinking in the way in which he and the trustees of the organization planned for the future um, and in a sense it has become ubiquitous uh, it has a huge uh, Spanish ministry now has a, an increasing Arabic ministry uh, Table Talk magazine which has Thousands, hundreds of thousands of readers goes all over the place. Um, and so I think Ligonier simply wants to encourage uh, Christians in areas where their ministry has become appreciated. Um, and that's the chief reason for the conference. Um, I think another thing is that uh, Ligonier has a number of conferences during the year. And although, you know, I'm obviously involved in uh, in Ligonier, but they they do things really very very well, and their their aim is not for theologians and theological students, or even in in this instance for ministers. It's it's for ordinary Christians, um, and you know if you ask so so what are they doing invading London? Um, I I guess I guess part of the answer is. This is, a, this is a conference in which the speakers are um, men of maturity who are reformed in their theology. Um, and there, there isn't really another conference like this, as far as I know. There are ministers' conferences here and there, um, and there are certainly conferences for Christians in general. But I don't know that there's a conference quite like this. They had one in Belfast last year, which w was very, very well attended and enormously appreciated, actually, by uh, folks in Northern Ireland and beyond. And so this is really kind of putting the other foot into the, into the, 
British waters <laughs> or, or putting it across across the pond well, because it has become a very international ministry. So. Yes, and um, and indeed there's uh, Michael Reeve speaking as well. Who... Yeah, and there's a good cross section of speakers, I think. You so know. both both US and UK. Yeah. 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 So there, you know, Ligonier Ligonier has never had the attitude. You know, the big boys are coming. Sure. No. It's always been. It's always been a ministry that has looked to supporting the church and the churches. I'd love to know, how would you describe your calling? I think of things in uh, uh, concentric circles. Um, my calling, first of all, is to be the Lord's, to be a Christian. Uh, second, um, chronologically, for me as an individual, the second element in my calling has been a call to ministry and then the third element and this kind of reverses the order for most people the third element has been marriage and family Um, and those two for us have been very much two sides of of the same coin and then that set within the context of belonging to a local church and serving in the local church. And that then set in the context of whatever it is I happen to do in the world and what I happen to do in the world uh, at the moment is is be a, be a, a, a retired minister and an author. And, yes. um, so I, all, I've, I think about a lot of things in terms of concentric circles. Absolutely. Well, I sadly we're out of time, Dr. Ferguson, but I would have loved you to... You have made this very speedy, Sam. <laughs> you're a master of the interview. Oh, that's too kind. I See appreciate it. See if you get your honorary degree of master of the interview. <laughs> if such a thing exists, I would love one. But um, Dr. Ferguson, thank you so much for joining us on the show. <laughs> really appreciate your time. Okay, thank you. I'm Sam Hales. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. You've joined us for The Profile. This show is also available as a podcast. And if you are listening to this currently as a podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you could give us a rating and a review on whatever platform you're currently listening to this on. It helps other people discover the show and it puts a smile on my face. I mean, what more do you want? Please give us a rating, give us a review. It really helps. And just before we go, I should remind you that, of course, the Light of the World Conference is coming up. It features all sorts of well-known Christian speakers. It's organised by Ligonier Ministries, and we'd love you to go for free. Claim your two free tickets worth £118 when you take out a subscription to Premier Christianity magazine. It's a fantastic offer. You'll get 12 issues of the UK's leading Christian magazine, and that features interviews and news and features and columnists and so much more. You'll also get full online access to our archive and you'll get those tickets to the conference premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe that's all we've got time for this week we will see you next time